Welcome to the September 30th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that demonstrates the efficacy of a synthetic inhibitor termed PG6 that blocks P-selectin signaling and reduces thrombus formation in a preclinical model of non-occlusive venous thrombosis. Learn more about how biallelic and single BZIP CEBPA mutations have an equally favorable prognostic impact in acute myeloid leukemia and examine the effects of modifying the pathophysiology of sickle cell anemia with therapeutic agents that increase oxygen affinity. Our first topic is a study entitled A PSGL1 Glycomimetic Reduces Thrombus Burden Without Affecting Hemostasis by Elliot Chaikoff and colleagues from the Beth Israel Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Venous thromboembolism, or VTE, affects as many as 1 million people in the United States every year with a significant impact on both morbidity and mortality. Systemic anticoagulation is frequently necessary to prevent clot propagation and fatal pulmonary emboli. However, all anticoagulants increase the risk of bleeding, with hemorrhagic complications occurring in up to 10% of individuals during the initial course of treatment, depending on the drug regimen, indication, and duration of therapy. Despite the initial promise that direct thrombin and factor 10A inhibitors would display superior safety profiles compared to warfarin, the risk of bleeding in real-world settings remains as high as 5 to 10% or more. As such, there is an urgent need for safer therapies. Events mediated by P-selectin and its receptor, PSGL1, play a critical role in the initiation and propagation of venous thrombosis by facilitating the accumulation of activated leukocytes and platelets within a thrombus. These activated cells release tissue factor, resulting in propagation of the clot, Inhibiting the P-selectin pathway has been of interest in an effort to potentially block thrombus growth without inhibiting the coagulation cascade. Here, Tchaikov and team developed a novel strategy to block this pathway by synthesizing a pegylated glycomimetic of the N-terminus of PSGL1, called PEG40-GSNP6, or PG6 for short. PG6 was shown to inhibit leukocyte P-selectin binding in a dose-dependent manner, and to inhibit platelet leukocyte aggregation in vitro and in vivo. Finally, they evaluated drug efficacy in a preclinical mouse model in which non-occlusive venous thrombosis was induced by electrolytic injury of the inferior vena cava. Flow cytometry was used to quantify binding inhibition of P-selectin FC chimeras to human and mouse leukocytes. Results of the study demonstrate that administration of PG6 reduces thrombus formation in this model, associated with commensurate reduction in leukocyte accumulation in the thrombus and without impairing hemostasis. While acknowledging several limitations to the work, including the need to evaluate the ability of PG6 to alter chronic inflammatory responses after venous thrombosis, the authors note future work will include studies in a venous stasis model as well as large animal models of venous thrombosis in order to assess venous recanalization and valve competency.
Chaikoff and team conclude that PG6 potently inhibits the P-selectin PSGL1 pathway and represents a promising drug candidate for the treatment of venous thrombosis without increased bleeding risk. In an accompanying commentary on the study, Peter Gross from McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, notes PG6 offers an approach to inhibiting the P-selectin-PSGL1 axis with high affinity, which would be easier to manufacture and less immunogenic than monoclonal antibodies. Finally, if the half-life of PG6 in humans is as favorable as it is in mice, once daily administration via subcutaneous injection may be possible. Therefore, PG6 needs to be evaluated for a wide range of indications, including preventing thrombosis in at-risk patients and in more chronic thrombotic syndromes. Our next study is titled, CEBPA BZIP mutations are associated with favorable prognosis in de novo AML, a report from the Children's Oncology Group by Catherine Tarlock at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington, and colleagues. CCAT enhancer binding protein alpha is a key myeloid transcription factor encoded by the CEBPA gene and has a critical role in mediating granulocyte differentiation and cell growth. Mutations in CEBPA are common drivers for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, occurring in 4 to 11% of patients and enriched in those with normal karyotype. Two mutational clusters exist and frequently occur together, typically on separate alleles. One mutational cluster occurs at the N-terminus and involves two transcription activation domains, or TADs, where frame-shift mutations lead to a truncated translational product due to use of an alternative start codon. The other mutational cluster occurs at the C-terminus, and involves the basic leucine zipper region, and often involves in-frame insertions or deletions that disrupt the dimerization and DNA binding function of the protein. Cooperation of the BZIP and TAD mutations is considered a potent leukemogenic event in AML. Interestingly, the bi-allelic acquisition of these mutations has been associated with a favorable prognosis compared to AML patients with wild-type CEBPA or patients with single mutations in CEBPA. Current World Health Organization AML classification considers a bi-allelic CEBPA mutation a distinct entity. Here, the study team looked more closely at patients with mutations in the BZIP domain in terms of impact on prognosis, comparing them to patients with wild-type CEBPA or double-mutant patients. CEBPA BZIP mutation status was determined in 2,958 AML patients enrolled on four different children's oncology group clinical trials. CEBPA BZIP mutations were identified in 5.4% of patients, with 82.5% of those harboring a second CEBPA mutation and 17.5% with only a single mutation. The clinical and laboratory features of the two CEBPA cohorts were very similar. CEBPA double mutants and CEBPA BZIP single mutation patients experienced identical event-free survival of 64% and similar overall survival of 81% and 89% respectively. 
This compared favorably to event-free survival and overall survival in CEBPA wild-type patients of 46% and 61%, respectively. Overall, they found that CEBPA BZIP domain mutations are associated with favorable clinical outcomes, regardless of whether they occurred alone or with another CEBPA mutation. In a second part of the study, the authors looked for mutations in other genes that were particularly enriched in patients with CEBPA mutations. Next-generation sequencing was then performed in 1,863 patients, 107 with CEBPA mutations, to look for the incidence of co-occurring mutations in other genes. Within the CEBPA mutant cases, 13.1% were found to have mutations in the CSF3R gene, encoding the GCSF receptor, and 21.5% were found to have mutations in the GATA2 gene, both higher-than-expected frequencies of mutation. Surprisingly, patients with dual CEBPA and CSF3R mutations had an event-free survival of only 17% versus 63% for CEBPA mutant CSF3R wild-type patients, with a corresponding relapse rate of 83% versus 22%, respectively. GATA2 co-occurrence did not impact outcome. The authors conclude that the presence of a mutation in CSF3R nullifies the otherwise favorable effect of mutations in CEBPA. George Sierra and Josep Namdedu from the Universitat Autonoma of Barcelona in Spain present commentary on the study and note its strengths, such as sample size and the extensive molecular characterization of patients using next-generation sequencing. They point out several questions and considerations for future studies, including, should patients with single BZIP CEBPA mutations also be included in the good prognostic category of AML if these findings are confirmed in adults? Should CEBPA-mutated AML with co-mutations in CSF3R be removed from the favorable risk group? What is the prognosis of patients with biallelic or single BZIP CEBPA mutations with persistent MRD? What is the prognosis of CEBPA-mutated AML with co-mutations in CSF3R and negative MRD? And lastly, can results of this pediatric and young adult series be extrapolated to adult AML patients? Our final topic today is Treatment of Sickle Cell Disease by Increasing Oxygen Affinity of Hemoglobin by Eric Henry at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. The concept of treating sickle cell disease, or SCD, by stabilizing the R, or oxy, conformation of hemoglobin, was introduced by Ernest Beutler almost 60 years ago. He proposed that converting a fraction of sickle hemoglobin to the oxidized form would reduce sickling because only the deoxy, or T, form of hemoglobin S can polymerize. However, Beutler also realized that such a treatment could compromise oxygen delivery to the tissues, since oxygen unloading in the tissues occurs from the low oxygen affinity T form of hemoglobin, not the high affinity R form. Nevertheless, efforts to develop small molecule drugs that preferentially bind to the R form to shift the TR conformational equilibrium towards non-polymerizing R were initiated and were finally successful with the development of voxelator, 
a drug that significantly increases the affinity of hemoglobin S for oxygen and reduces sickling. With the FDA approval of Voxelator in 2019, the prospect of treating sickle cell disease with drugs that increase hemoglobin oxygen affinity has come to the forefront. Prior to this approval, the only FDA-approved anti-sickling drug was hydroxyurea in 1998. Treatment of patients with Voxelator increases HB levels and decreases indicators of hemolysis, but with no indication to date that it reduces the frequency of pain episodes. In this study, Henry and colleagues simulated the whole blood oxygen disassociation curves and red cell sickling in the absence and presence of Voxelator under conditions of rapid oxygen pressure decreases, as would be found in vivo. They then performed a series of experiments with red cells from sickle cell patients to directly assess the effects of Voxelator on both sickling and the ability to deliver oxygen. Their modeling agreed with these experiments using a new robust assay that showed the very large expected decrease in sickling from the drug. However, the modeling indicated that the increase in oxygen delivery from reduced sickling was largely offset by the increase in oxygen affinity so that oxygen was not unloaded in the low oxygen environment of tissue. The net result was that the drug increased overall oxygen delivery only at the very lowest oxygen pressures. Reduction of sickling did, however, mitigate against red cell damage, which explained the increase in hemoglobin and the observed decrease in hemolysis. In addition, the study significantly increased understanding of oxygen disassociation in sickle red cells. First, oxygen transport in sickle cell disease depends importantly on the kinetics of HBS polymerization as red cells rapidly pass through the tissues. And also, although mathematical modeling largely agreed with experimental data, there was significant patient-to-patient -patient variation, which is not yet explained. Finally, the authors used their model to compare Voxelator to two other strategies to reduce sickling, specifically increasing hemoglobin F and decreasing red cell size. The results suggest that drugs that increase fetal hemoglobin or decrease MCHC should be more effective than drugs like Voxelator that increase oxygen affinity. While the authors conclude that the improvement in hemoglobin levels of patients treated with Voxelator is misleading due to the presence of non-functional hemoglobin, the long-term effects of reduced hemolysis should be beneficial. In their commentary on the study, Charles Quinn and Russell Ware from University of Cincinnati in Ohio suggest this study should give pause. While Voxelator is commercially available and can increase the circulating hemoglobin concentration and improve oxygen carrying capacity, the net effect remains incompletely defined. Tissue perfusion is difficult to quantify, but measures such as near-infrared spectrometry should be studied prospectively as well as serial brain MRI to identify parenchymal damage from underperfusion. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.